0: I add my word of welcome to all who are gathered in this great conference. It has veritably become a world conference. We now speak to congregations throughout North America and instantaneously reach to some across the sea. Hundreds of thousands are gathered this morning to hear the word of the Lord. I thank you for your faith and for your desires and seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you of an experience I had with one of our area presidents. We were in a land where, to our knowledge, there was not a member of the Church among the millions of that nation. There was a man who knew of the Church and desired baptism. He had been a long-time student of the Bible. He belonged to a Christian Church but was not satisfied. The thought came into his mind that he should belong to a Church that carried the name of the Savior. In an old encyclopedia in a public library, he found listed The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with headquarters in Salt Lake City. He wrote a letter of inquiry and received a response with literature. Other literature followed it as he requested When we met him, he had read the Book of Mormon again and again. He had read the Doctrine and Covenants and other Church writings. With enthusiasm, he had told his friends of his treasured find. He asked to be baptized. We questioned him. He knew of the priesthood, its order, and its offices. He knew of the various ordinances and the procedures of our meetings. Did he believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God? Oh yes, he knew it to be the true. He had read it. He had prayed about it and pondered. He had no doubt of its truth. Did he believe Joseph Smith to be a prophet of God? Most assuredly. Again, he had studied and prayed. He was convinced of the reality of that glorious vision when God, the Eternal Father, and His beloved Son, the Resurrected Lord, appeared to the boy Joseph to usher in a new and final dispensation of gospel truth. The priesthood had been restored with all its gifts and powers. He knew that. Our friend asked for baptism and hoped for the priesthood, that he might teach and act with proper authority. But, we said, If we baptize you and then leave, you will be left alone. While there are many Christians in your nation and freedom of religion is guaranteed under its laws, there are severe restrictions concerning foreigners. There will be no one to teach you and help you. There will be no one on whom you can lean. He responded, God will teach me and help me and he will be my friend and support. I looked into the eyes of that good man and saw the light of faith. We baptized him under the authority of the holy priesthood. We confirmed him a member of the Church and bestowed upon him the Holy Ghost. We baptized his wife. We conferred upon him the Aaronic Priesthood and ordained him to the office of priest so that under proper direction they might have the sacrament. We held a sacrament and testimony meeting with them. We embraced them and said goodbye one to another, and tears were in our eyes. They left to return to their homes, and we left for responsibilities in other places. I shall never forget him. He is poor in the things of the world, but he is educated a teacher by profession. I know little more of his circumstances, but this I know. When we talked with him, the fire of faith burned in his heart, and our own faith was quickened also. As we traveled from that scene and there was time to meditate, I wished that faith of his kind were found more widely both among us and among others. His example has provided a text for me. It is found in the fifth verse of the 17th chapter of Luke. Jesus had been teaching His disciples by precept and parable. And the Apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. This is my prayer for all of us. Lord, increase our faith increase our faith to bridge the chasms of uncertainty and doubt. As most of you know, in the last four or five years, we have passed through an interesting episode in the history of the Church. There came into our hands two letters that were seized upon by the media when we announced them. They were trumpeted across much of the world as documents that would shake the authenticity of the Church. In announcing them, we stated that they really had nothing to do with the essentials of our history, but some few of little faith, of the kind who seemingly are always quick to believe the negative, accepted as fact the pronouncements and predictions of the media. I recall a letter from an individual who asked that his name be taken from the records of the Church because he could no longer believe in a Church that had to do with an experience with a salamander. Now, as you know, these letters, together with other documents, have been acknowledged by their forger to be total frauds and part of an evil and devious design which culminated in the murder of two individuals. I have wondered what those whose faith was shaken have thought since the forger confessed to his evil work. However, I hasten to add, the vast majority of Church members, all but a very few, paid little attention and went forward with their faithful service, living by a conviction firmly grounded in that knowledge which comes by the power of the Holy Ghost. They knew then and they know now that God watches over this work, that Jesus Christ is the head of this Church, that it is true, and that happiness and growth come of following its precepts and teachings. Out of this earlier episode has now arisen another phenomenon. It is described as the writing of a new history of the Church as distinguished from the old history. It represents, among other things, an effort to ferret out every element of folk magic and the occult in the environment in which Joseph Smith lived to explain what he did and why. I have no doubt there was folk magic practiced in those days. Without question, there were superstitions and the superstitious. I suppose there was some of this in the days when the Savior walked the earth. There is even some in this age of so-called enlightenment. For instance, some hotels and business buildings skip the numbering of floor 13. Does this mean there is something wrong with the building? Of course not. Or with the builders? No. Similarly. The fact that there were superstitions among the people in the days of Joseph Smith is no evidence whatever that the Church came of such superstition. Joseph Smith himself wrote or dictated his history. It is his testimony of what occurred, and he sealed that testimony with his life. It is written in language clear and plain and unmistakable. From an ancient record, he translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. It is here for all to see and handle and read. Those who have read with faith and inquired in prayer have come to a certain knowledge that it is true. The present effort of trying to find some other explanation for the organization of the Church for the origin of the Book of Mormon and for the priesthood with its keys and powers will be similar to other anti-Mormon fads which have come and blossomed and faded. Truth will prevail. A knowledge of that truth comes by effort and study, yes, but it comes primarily as a gift from God to those who seek in faith. My constant prayer in behalf of the entire Church is this. Lord, increase our faith to rise above the feeble detractors of this thy great and holy work. Strengthen our will. Help us to build and expand thy kingdom according to thy great mandate, that this gospel may be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations. I have seen answers to that prayer. I have seen the miracle of the expansion of this cause and kingdom and can testify of it. In 1960, only 27 years ago, I was given an assignment by the First Presidency to work with the mission presidents, the missionaries, and the Saints in Asia. The Church was weak and small in that part of the earth. The seed had been planted in Japan, Taiwan, and Korea by faithful Latter-day Saints in military service, but it was tiny and unstable. We had no buildings of our own. We met as small groups in rented houses. In winter, they were cold and uncomfortable. Converts came into the Church, but some, lacking faith, soon left. However, there remained a residual, of strong and wonderful men and women who looked beyond the adversity of the moment. They found their strength in the message, not in the facilities. They have remained faithful to this day, and their numbers have been added to by the tens and tens of thousands. A few Sundays back, we held a regional conference in Tokyo. The spacious hall was filled to capacity. There were almost as many present on that occasion as there are assembled in the Salt Lake Tabernacle this morning. The Spirit of the Lord was there. An attitude of faith filled the vast congregation. For me, who had known those days when we were weak and few in number, it was a miracle to behold for which I give thanks to the Lord. We had a similar experience in Hong Kong where there are now four stakes of Zion. Then in Seoul, Korea, my heart was touched as we entered the largest hall in that great city to find every seat taken by members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their invited guests. A magnificent choir of 320 voices opened with the hymn, Oh, How Lovely Was the Morning. It was a moving expression of the first vision of the Prophet Joseph Smith. I had known South Korea in its days of poverty and reconstruction following the terrible war. When first I went there, we had six missionaries in Seoul and two in Pusan. Some were ill with hepatitis. Today there are four thriving missions in that land with some 600 missionaries. Many of them are sons and daughters of Korea. They include bright and beautiful young women in whose hearts burns the light of faith. They include young men who leave schooling for a season in order to serve missions. These are under tremendous pressures because of military requirements as well as educational demands but they have faith in their hearts. When first I went to South Korea, there were two or three tiny branches. Today there are 150 local units of the Church, both wards and branches. Then it was a small, isolated district of the northern Far East Mission. We had no chapels. Today there are 14 stakes, with 47 chapels built and owned by the Church and another 52 under lease with others under construction. I felt a spirit in that congregation three weeks ago that touched me to the depths of my soul. I saw the sweet fruits of faith. I knew of the early struggles in establishing an unknown Church. I knew of the poverty of the people. Now there is strength. There is an undreamed-of measure of prosperity. There is a warm spirit of fellowship. There are families of devoted husbands and wives and good and beautiful children. These are people I love, and I love them because of their faith. They are intelligent and well-educated. They are hardworking and progressive. They are humble and prayerful. They are an example to others across the world. I say again, as did the Apostles to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Grant us faith to look beyond the problems of the moment to the miracles of the future. Give us faith to pay our tithes and offerings and put our trust in Thee, the Almighty, to open the windows of heaven as Thou hast promised. Give us faith to do what is right and let the consequence follow. Grant us faith when storms of adversity beat us down and drive us to the ground. In seasons of sickness, may our confidence wax strong in the powers of the priesthood. May we follow the counsel of James. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the Church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. He who will follow me in speaking, President Howard W. Hunter, is a shining example of the efficacy of such faith. Lord, when we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, give us faith to smile through our tears, knowing that it is all part of the eternal plan of a loving Father, that as we cross the threshold from this life, we enter another more glorious, and that through the Atonement of the Son of God, all shall rise from the grave, and the faithful shall go on to exaltation give us faith to pursue the work of redemption of the dead, that Thine eternal purposes may be fulfilled in behalf of Thy sons and daughters of all generations. Father, grant us faith to follow counsel in the little things that can mean so very much. Our President, he whom we sustain as prophet, has repeatedly since he was called to this responsibility asked us to read that other great witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon. Tens of thousands have now done so to their great blessing. They could testify, Sweet are the rewards of simple faith. Lord, increase our faith in one another and in ourselves and in our capacity to do good and great things. This, my brothers and sisters, is my prayer. There is a simple and moving story in the book of 1 Kings. Permit me to read you a few lines. And Elijah the Tishpite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the book Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So Elijah went and did according unto the word of the Lord. There was no argument. There was no discussion. There was no rationalizing on the part of Elijah. He simply went and did. Father, increase our faith. Of all our needs, I think the greatest is an increase of faith. And so, dear Father, increase our faith in Thee and in Thy beloved Son in Thy great eternal work, in ourselves as Thy children, and in our capacity to go and do according to Thy will and Thy precepts, I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
1: My dear brothers and sisters, I rejoice with you in the privilege of coming together on this beautiful Sabbath day to worship our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and to be instructed by their servants. The Book of Mormon tells of the resurrected Lord visiting some of the people of the Americas. Clothed in a white robe, He descended out of Heaven. Standing in the midst of a multitude, he stretched forth his hand and said, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and life of the world. He has repeated this declaration in many modern revelations. In harmony with his words, we solemnly affirm that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Eternal Father, is the light and life of the world. Jesus Christ is the light and life of the world because all things were made by him. Under the direction and according to the plan of God the Father, Jesus Christ is the creator, the source of the light and life of all things. Through modern revelation, we have the testimony of John, who bore record that Jesus Christ is the Light and the Redeemer of the world, the Spirit of Truth, who came into the world because the world was made by Him, and in Him was the life of men and the light of men. The worlds were made by Him. Men were made by Him. All things were made by Him and through Him and of Him, Jesus Christ is the light of the world because he is the source of the light which proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. His light is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The scriptures call this the light of truth, the light of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ. This is the light that quickens our understanding. It is the light by which we may judge. It is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Jesus Christ is also the light of the world because his example and his teachings illuminate the path we should walk to return to the presence of our Father in heaven. Before Jesus was born, Zacharias prophesied that the Lord God of Israel would visit his people to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide their feet into the way of peace. During his ministry, Jesus taught, Behold, I am the light. I have set an example for you. Later he told his apostles, Hold up your light, that it may shine unto the world, adding, Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. He taught the Nephite multitude, Ye know the things that ye must do in my church, for the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. The Savior emphasized the close relationship between his light and his commandments when he taught the Nephites, Behold, I am the law and the light. The psalmist expressed that relationship, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. As the Lord led Lehi and his people out of Jerusalem, he said, I will also be your light in the wilderness. And I will prepare the way before you, if it so be that ye shall keep my commandments. As we keep the Lord's commandments, we see his light ever brighter on our path, and we realize the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, And the Lord shall guide thee continually. Jesus Christ is also the light of the world because his power persuades us to do good. In his concluding writings, the prophet Moroni taught, All things which are good cometh from God. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good, and to love God, and to serve Him, is inspired of God. Moroni's words mirror what the Lord had told him while he was compiling the Book of Mormon. He that believeth these things which I have spoken shall know that these things are true. For it persuadeth men to do good, and whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I am the light and the life and the truth of the world. And so we see that Jesus Christ is the light of the world because he is the source of the light that quickens our understanding because His teachings and His example illuminate our path and because His power persuades us to do good. Jesus Christ is the life of the world because of His unique position in what the scriptures call the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Jesus taught, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Later, Jesus explained to his apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We come to the Father through the life-giving mission of the Son— in two ways. In each of these ways, Jesus Christ is the life of the world, our Savior and our Redeemer. Through the power and example of the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, all mankind will be resurrected. Our mortal life came into being because of his creative act. Our immortal life has now been assured because the resurrected Lord has redeemed us from death. According to the plan of the Father, the Son was the firstborn from the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus Christ is also the life of the world because He has atoned for the sins of the world. By yielding to temptation, Adam and Eve were cut off from the presence of the Lord. In the scriptures, this separation is called spiritual death. The atonement of our Savior overcame this spiritual death. The scriptures say, The Son of God hath atoned for original guilt. As Paul taught the saints in Rome, Therefore, as by the offense of one— Judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. As a result of this Atonement, men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. Our Savior has redeemed us from the sin of Adam, but what about the effects of our own sins? Since all have sinned, we are all spiritually dead. Again, our only hope for life is our Savior, who the prophet Lehi taught, "...offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law." In order to lay claim upon our Savior's life-giving triumph over the spiritual death we suffer because of our own sins, we must follow the conditions He has prescribed. As He has told us in modern revelation, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Our third article of faith describes the Savior's conditions in these words— We believe that through the Atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. In the words of our Savior, recorded in the Book of Mormon, as he taught the people on this continent, And whosoever will hearken unto my words, and repenteth, and is baptized, the same shall be saved. In summary, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, is the life of the world because His Resurrection and His Atonement save us from both physical and spiritual death. Nephi rejoiced in this gift of life. Oh, how great the goodness of our God, he said, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster... Yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. I wish that everyone could understand our belief and hear our testimony that Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, is the light and life of the world. Some who profess to be followers of Christ insist that members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are not Christians. Indeed, there are those who make their living attacking our Church and its doctrines. I wish all of them could have the experience I shared recently. A friend who was making his first visit to Salt Lake City called on me in my office. He is a well-educated man and a devout and sincere Christian. Although we have not discussed this with each other, we both know that some leaders of his denomination have taught that members of our Church are not Christians. After a short discussion on a matter of common interest, I told my friend I had something I would like him to see. We walked over to Temple Square and into the North Information Center. We viewed the pictures of Bible and Book of Mormon apostles and prophets. Then we turned our steps up the inclined walkway to the second level. Here, Thorvaldsen's great statue of the risen Christ dominates a setting suggestive of the immensity of space and the grandeur of the creations of God. As we emerged and beheld this majestic likeness of the Christus, arms outstretched and hands showing the wounds of his crucifixion, my friend drew a sharp breath. We stood quietly for a few minutes, enjoying a reverent communion of worshipful thoughts about our Savior. Then, without further conversation, we made our way down to the street level. On the way, we walked past the small diorama showing the Prophet Joseph Smith kneeling in the sacred grove. As we left Temple Square and took our leave of one another, my friend took me by the hand. Thank you for showing me that, he said. Now I understand something about your faith that I have never understood before. I hope that every person who has ever had doubts about whether we are Christians can achieve that same understanding. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, our Savior, and our Redeemer. His is the only name by which we can be saved. We seek to serve Him. We belong to His Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our missionaries and members testify of Jesus Christ in many nations of the world. As the prophet Nephi wrote in the Book of Mormon, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, We prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. As we state in our first article of faith, we believe in God the Eternal Father, and in His Son Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. God the Father, the great Elohim, the Almighty God— is the Father of our spirits, the Framer of heaven and earth, and the author of the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, Jehovah, the Holy One, and God of Israel, the Messiah, the God of the whole earth. As the Book of Mormon declares, salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. The scriptures proclaim, and we reverently affirm, that Jesus Christ is the light and life of the world. What does this knowledge mean to Latter-day Saints? We call ourselves Saints because this is the scriptural term for those who have sought to make their lives holy by entering into covenants to follow Christ. Our Savior is the light of the world, We should live so that we can be enlightened by His Spirit, and so that we may hear and heed the ratifying seal of the Holy Ghost, which testifies of the Father and the Son. We should study the principles of His gospel and receive its ordinances. We should keep His commandments, including His two great commandments, to love God and to love and serve our neighbors. We should be faithful to the covenants we have made in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Savior is also the life of the world. We should give thanks for His absolute gift of immortality. We should receive the ordinances and keep the covenants necessary to receive His conditional gift of life eternal, the greatest of all the gifts of God. In short, Latter-day Saints invite each other and all men and women everywhere to come unto Christ. As a prophet has told us in the Book of Mormon, I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption. Yea, come unto him, and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him. And continue in fasting and praying, and endure to the end, and as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. May God bless all of us to come unto Christ. I testify that He is our Savior and our Redeemer, the light and the life of the world. In the name
2: of Jesus Christ, amen. This summer, our first grandson was called on a mission. We watched with anticipation and excitement as he prepared for that great adventure. We saw a transformation take place as he experienced his farewell, his temple endowment, and his entrance to the missionary training center. It was a little miracle to see a typical, selfish teenage boy become a selfless servant of God. He became a man overnight. We thrilled at his letters from the training center in which he told his friends to get with it, that this is where it's at. We saw a new boldness as he became immersed in his mission. That boldness and spirit have been increased now that he's in the mission field teaching what he believes. Let me share a portion of a letter he wrote to a non member friend who is investigating the church. It's great to hear you've taken the discussions. They are really cool. Let me tell you something about commitment. You just got to make it. Get committed. Read the Book of Mormon. I did it in nine days and I only read for one and a half hours a day. Get committed to attend church every week. It's a commandment of God and it's necessary for baptism. Get committed to pray. If you'd read the Book of Mormon and pray about it, you would know that it's true. Finally, Get committed to baptism. Christ did it, and you have to, too. I suspect that you know the gospel is true, or you wouldn't put up with it. Remember, God knows you know it, and if you don't make the commitment, he will still hold you accountable because you know the truth. Being lukewarm in the gospel doesn't do anyone any good, especially you. As a grandfather, I exult when I see my own flesh and blood entering the Lord's service so well prepared and pray that my other grandchildren will respond so readily to the call as he has done. In pondering what they could do to prepare to serve missions, I believe the best formula I could give them—and all the youth of the Church—is found in a single verse in the second chapter of Luke. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man." That one verse gives us an insight into what our Savior did to prepare for His ministry. It tells us that Jesus Christ grew physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. As His disciples, can we do less? Let us consider how we can prepare in the same manner so we can truly represent Him. Physical Preparation Missionary work is demanding. It imposes heavy physical and mental stress. It's not for weaklings. It requires good health, stamina, strength, and self-control. A missionary gets a lot of exercise. He walks long distances, rides bicycles up hills, and he has to survive his companion's cooking. (laughs) He rises early and he works hard until late at night. Who does your cooking? Sewing? Ironing? Who makes your bed? Who sweeps the floor? Who does the dishes? Who presses your pants, launders your shirt, shines your shoes? Who reminds you to get up or to go to bed? You'd do well to become self-sufficient in these matters before you go on your mission. It's much easier to learn now from a loving mother, from sisters, and the young women of the ward than to wait until you're forced to learn to survive. In your youth, remember the importance of living the Word of Wisdom and the glorious promise that the Lord gives us when we do. As part of your physical preparation, consider how your mission will be financed. If you have not started a mission savings account, there is no better time than right now. Do you know how to budget, shop for groceries, do without, make do? If you don't, where and when are you going to learn? mental preparation. Before I could even practice law, I had to get through elementary school, high school, college, and graduate school. That required many years of study and education. And yet some of us seem to feel that we can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, which embraces all truth, simply by attending church, making little effort to learn and practice its vital teachings. As you prepare for your mission, remember the counsel of the old sage. You cannot teach what you don't know any more than you can come back from a place you ain't been. (laughs) How is your educational preparation? Do you love to learn? Do you know how to listen, to read, to study, to ponder, to memorize? Are you reading the scriptures regularly and understanding them? They were written to you and to me not only to those who lived at the time they were penned. President Benson encouraged you to participate in a program of daily reading and pondering of the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon. Think on his words. Young men, the Book of Mormon will change your life. It will fortify you against the evils of our day. It will bring a spirituality into your life that no other book will. It will be the most important book you will read in preparation for a mission and for life. A young man who knows and loves the Book of Mormon, who has read it several times, who has an abiding testimony of its truthfulness, and who applies its teachings will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and will be a mighty tool in the hands of the Lord. What a promise from a prophet of God! From the Missionary Training Center, my grandson wrote to a friend, Read the Book of Mormon. It's the best book I've ever read, and I'm not just saying that. You'll be surprised how often you'll draw on the scriptures to enrich your discussions, resolve concerns, and relate principles to real-life experiences. I urge you to study a foreign language. That will open doors and opportunities that will serve you well, not only on your mission, but throughout your life. Seminary provides a great opportunity to mentally prepare for your mission. Social preparation. How do you like yourself? A mission requires faith in self, and that comes from practice. It comes from understanding who you are as a child of God and what you can become. A missionary soon discovers that whether he thinks he can or he thinks he can't, he's right. Do you honor and sustain the law? Are you dependable, a person of your word? There will not be another time in your life where more trust and confidence will be exhibited in you. Can you obey rules? Missions are run by rules. Are you honest in your relationship with others? Do you like people? Can you imagine living with another missionary 24 hours a day and enjoying it? What great lessons you will learn about the brotherhood of man in this microcosm of society. One of the missionaries that served with me had a difficult time getting along with companions. I was required to transfer them frequently because they could not take it. Finally, I asked one of my finest missionaries to become his companion, urging him to do all he could to help his fellow missionary love his work. As I approached the conference in the city where they were laboring, I feared he, like his predecessors, would ask for a transfer. To my surprise, when I asked how he was getting along with his companion, he responded, We're doing great. We discovered we had something in common. Neither of us has been to Africa. (laughs) I promise you that you'll make some of the most enduring friendships of your life. I look back on my own mission and the men I associated with there. They've had a powerful, positive effect on my life. They're among my closest friends. Why is this so? Someone said, A mission is like being dipped in a big pot of love. Recently I attended a state conference where a beautiful teenage girl told of her experience of working with a companionship of lady missionaries. With deep emotion, she spoke of the love they exhibited toward everyone—friendly or unfriendly, responsive or abusive. They recognized that each person they met was truly a child of God, dearly loved by Him. Could they do less? That love rubbed off on everyone they contacted, even to their relationship with each other. Spiritual Preparation God's truth can only be known through the Spirit of the Lord. A missionary must be in tune with that Holy Spirit. He must recognize its guidance and inspiration. His life must be pure so he can count on that Spirit and all that he does. How can you prepare to enjoy that Holy Spirit First, keep your life clean in thought and action. Immorality is Satan's most potent tool against us and leads to more unhappiness, grief, regret, and self-degradation than any other sin. It is deadly to our eternal progress. Avoid it like a plague. Two, pray from your heart. Then listen for God's answer. Three, Develop a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ by practicing His teachings in your daily activities. Fourth, stand up for what you believe. Set the standards for your life, and don't be swayed by lower standards of others. You are in charge of your life. Five, honor your priesthood, which has come to you from God and will serve as an armor for you throughout life as you respect its mighty power. Six, Set long-range goals. Determine in advance your course of action. Map out where you want to go and how you are going to get there. This will help you resist the temptations of Satan when they come, as they surely will. 7. Keep the commandments. That will lead to happiness and fulfillment. 8. We have discovered that the best way to prepare for a mission is to have the spiritual experience of teaching the gospel to others. Before you are called, we urge you to reach out to your friends. Help teach them the gospel by teaming with the full-time or the stake missionaries, bearing your testimonies in that atmosphere. You will then become acquainted with how the Holy Spirit works to guide others to the truth, and you will recognize its sweet influence in your own experience. You will understand, as Elisha's young servant came to understand, As he discovered the city surrounded by the Syrian army, running to Elisha in panic, he asked, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. When you are in tune with that Holy Spirit, you will be well-armed to be the Lord's representative, prepared to teach and to testify, bringing souls to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In last April's Regional Representative Seminar, President Hinckley said, In missionary work as in all else— Preparation precedes power. Encouragement to prepare while still very young can make a tremendous difference. To my grandchildren and to the youth of the Church, wherever you are, I invite you to make the commitment to serve a mission. I invite you to become a part of the royal army of the Lord to prepare yourselves physically, mentally, socially, spiritually, beginning right now. President Benson has reminded us that nothing you can do is more important. School can wait. Scholarships can be deferred. Occupational goals can be postponed. Yes, even temple marriage should wait. With President Benson, I invite you to show your love and commitment to the Lord by responding to His call to serve and joining your voice with 34,000 other missionaries in singing. Called to serve Him, heavenly King of glory, chosen heir to witness for His name. Far and wide we tell the Father's story, far and wide His love proclaim. Called to know the richness of His blessing, sons and daughters, children of a king, glad of heart His holy name confessing, praises unto Him we bring. Onward, ever onward, as we glory in His name. Onward, ever onward, as we glory in His name. Forward, pressing forward, as a triumph song we sing. God, our strength will be pressed forward ever, called to serve our King. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature and in favor with God and man. All youth of the Church, go and do likewise. Be prepared to serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
3: Forgive me if I remain seated while I present these few remarks. It is not by choice that I speak from a wheelchair. I notice that the rest of you seem to enjoy the conference sitting down, so I'll follow your example. (laughs) With reference to both standing and sitting, I have observed that life every life, has a full share of ups and downs. Indeed, we may see many joys and sorrows in the world, many changed plans and new directions, many blessings that do not always look or feel like blessings, and much that humbles us and improves our patience and our faith. We have all had those experiences from time to time, and I suppose we always will. A passage from one of the greatest prophetic sermons ever given, King Benjamin's masterful discourse to the people of Zarahemla in the Book of Mormon, reads this way. Men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children. For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. Being childlike and submitting to our Father's will is not always easy. President Spencer W. Kimball, who knew a good deal about suffering, disappointment, and Circumstances Beyond His Control, once wrote, Being human, we would expel from our lives physical pain and mental anguish and assure ourselves of continual ease and comfort. But if we were to close the doors upon sorrow and distress, we might be excluding our greatest friends and benefactors. Suffering can make saints of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. In that statement, President Kimball refers to closing doors upon certain experiences in life. That image brings to mind a line from Cervantes' great classic, Don Quixote, that has given me comfort over the years— In that masterpiece we find the short but very important reminder that where one door closes, another opens. Doors close regularly in our lives, and some of those closings cause genuine pain and heartache. But I do believe that where One such door closes, another opens—and perhaps more than one—with hope and blessings in other areas of our lives that we might not have discovered otherwise. Our beloved quorum president, Marion G. Romney, is not able to be with us here today. My, how we miss his companionship and his wit and experience and his leadership. President Romney has had some doors swing closed for him, even in the work of his ministry. He's known considerable pain and discouragement and seen his plans change during these past few years. But it was he who from this very pulpit a few years ago said that all men and women, including the most faithful and loyal, would find adversity and affliction in their lives, because, in the words of Joseph Smith, men have to suffer that they might come upon Mount Zion and be exalted above the heavens. President Romney then said, This does not mean that we crave suffering. We avoid all we can, however we now know. And we knew when we elected to come into mortality that we would here be proved in the crucible of adversity and affliction. Furthermore, the Father's plan for proving and refining His children did not exempt the Savior himself. The suffering he undertook to endure, and which he did endure, equaled the combined suffering of all men and women everywhere. Trembling and bleeding and wishing to shrink from the cup, he said, I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men, All of us must finish our preparations unto the children of men. Christ's preparations were quite different from our own, but we all have preparations to make, doors to open. To make such important preparations often will require some pain, some unexpected changes in life's path and some submitting even as a child doth submit to his Father. Finishing divine preparations and opening celestial doors may take us, indeed undoubtedly will take us, right up to the concluding hours of our mortal lives. We all miss our beloved brother, A. Theodore Tuttle, who recently opened a new door to return to his heavenly home. His preparations in mortality have been fully completed for such a journey. He, too, like President Romney, stood in this tabernacle and spoke of adversity, adversity that he knew would come to each of us, but that he may not then have known would come to him as early as it did. He said, Adversity in one form or another is the universal experience of man. It is the common lot of all to experience misfortune, suffering, sickness, or other adversities. Sometimes our work is arduous and unnecessarily demanding. Our faith is tried in various ways, sometimes unjustly tried. It seems. At times it seems that even God is punishing us and ours. For all, on one of the, th- on one of the things that makes all of this so uh, hard to bear is that we ourselves appear to be chosen for this affliction while others presumably escape. But we can cannot indulge ourselves in the luxury of self-pity. Elder Tuttle then said, and let us and left us these lines from Robert Browning Hamilton, entitled "Along the Road." Teach a Lesson on Pleasure and a Lesson on Sorrow. I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, and left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And now this mortal portion of Elder Tuttle's journey is over. He closed the door and opened another. Now he walks and talks with the angels. And so someday will we close and open those same doors. I've mentioned the lives of two of our contemporary brethren, obviously Prophets of an earlier day have known adversity and difficulty as well. They were not spared, these challenges, any more than our generation has been spared. The great Book of Mormon, Mormon patriarch Lehi spoke encouragingly to his son Jacob, a son born in the wilderness in the time of prevail and opposition. Jacob's life was not as he might have expected it to be and not as the ideal course of experience might have outlined. He had suffered affliction and setbacks, but Lehi promised that such afflictions would be consecrated for his son's gain. Then then Lehi added these words that have become classic. For it needs be that there is an opposition in all things. And if so, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness, neither misery, neither good nor bad. I have taken great comfort over the years in this explanation of some of life's pain and disappointment. I take even greater comfort that the greatest of of men and women, including the Son of God— have faced such opposition in order to better understand the contrast between righteousness and wickedness, holiness and misery, good and bad. From out of the dark, damp confinement of Liberty Jail, the Prophet Joseph Smith learned that if we are called to pass through tribulation, it is for our growth and experience and will ultimately be counted for our good. Where one door shuts, another opens, even for a prophet in prison. We are not always wise enough or experienced enough to judge adequately all of the possible entries and exits. The mansion that God prepares for each of his beloved children may have only certain hallways and banisters, special carpets and curtains that he would have us pass on our way to possess it. I share the, express, the, the, the view expressed by Orson F. Whitney in these words. No pain that we suffer, no trial that we experience, is wasted. It ministers to our education, to the development of such qualities as patience, faith, fortitude, and humility. All that we suffer and all that we endure, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our hearts, expands our souls, and makes us more tender and charitable, more worthy to be called the children of God. And it is through sorrow and suffering, trial and tribulation, that we gain the education that we came here to acquire and which will make us more like our Father in Heaven. In various times in our lives, probably at repeated times in our lives, we do have to acknowledge that God knows what we do not know and sees what we do not see. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. If you have troubles at home with children who stray, if you suffer financial reverses and emotional strain that threatens your home and your happiness, you must face the loss of life or health. May peace be unto your soul. We will not be tempted beyond our ability to withstand our detours and disappointments are the straight and narrow path to Him, as we sing in one of our favorite hymns. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. May God bless us in the ups and downs of life. In the opening and closing of doors, I pray in
0: the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.